Cool. All right, our campaign is called The Fully Formed Life, and today we're transitioning into the second half of that. So we've been talking about spiritual formation, talking about what it means to grow and become more like Jesus. What are we after with this whole spiritual formation thing? About um, spiritual growth is another way of describing it. The definition we're operating off of is simply the process of growing in love for God and others. Okay, very simple in definition, but when we start to unpack it, which we have been uh, over the last few weeks, we've been unpacking what it looks like to grow in love for God. So I hope you're realizing and you're getting the sense that it's very simple in concept, but it's one of those things that we will never reach the end of. That we, as followers of Christ, will continue growing and learning, become, learning how to love God more. That's what we've been focusing on, is how to love God more with all of our being, not just our mind, not just in our thinking and in our Bible study, uh, but in our heart and in our soul. And as John talked about last week, in our strength with all of our capacity. So we've been, today we're transitioning to the second part of this. So Jesus in Mark 12, this is what our whole campaign is based off of. He's asked, uh, what is the greatest commandment? And which one is the most important? He's asked. And Jesus, he answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, which they prayed every morning and every evening in Jewish culture. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's what we've been spending a lot of time unpacking lately. What does that look like, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? So remember, Jesus has only asked for one, but he keeps going. He just kind of <laughs> blazes right through and keeps talking. The second is this. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Now, one of the things that is most striking about this statement is just how far apart they are in Scripture. Okay, so in the Old Testament, uh, the Shema, which Jesus quotes first, is in Deuteronomy 6. This is in Leviticus chapter 19. And they're not really connected anyplace else in the law of Moses. And according to, uh, what's his name, James Edwards, commentator that I read on this, he, he says that no other rabbi before has made this connection. At least we don't have any record of it, of Jesus making this connection, connecting the Shema, which was kind of, uh, known as the most important commandment. But Jesus, he connects the two and he says, yeah, you can't just do this without also this. And they're not really close in scripture, but Jesus, he connects them and he makes them really both part of the most important commandment. So that says a lot about Jesus' authority and how he viewed himself. He viewed himself as the ultimate interpreter of the law to take um, what Scott McKnight calls the Jesus Creed. He calls this the Jesus Creed because the Shema was kind of like a creed and Jesus essentially alters it. And he says, it's not just about loving God with all of your being. We have to also love our neighbor as ourselves. And if you're familiar with the church history, you don't change creeds. Like one guy does not just change a creed. Okay, that led to the split of the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Church, which became the Catholic Church. It led to a major split because they added one phrase known as the filioque in, yeah, whatever, okay, I'm getting. You don't change creeds, okay? And Jesus changed a creed here. He just, 
he just added to it. You don't add to creeds. It's crazy. Anyways, I'm going to move on. Okay, so when we talk about love, um, I'm going to keep bringing this up, okay? Because when we talk about love, our cultural description of love, is it often just gets blurry with the Christian definition of love. So when we talk about love, we're going to talk about it as this internal movement, I guess we'll call it, if I want to sound like a spiritual guru kind of guy. We'll call it like an internal movement, not like an emotion or a feeling, just to avoid that language. So whatever it is, it's this internal movement within us that leads us to act in another's best interest, okay? So it leads us to act in the best interest of another, not just ourselves, okay? So now we see how pride is the kind of antithesis to love because pride causes us to act in our own best interest, whereas love causes us to act in the best interest of another. All right, so throughout this campaign, throughout this series, I've been really emphasizing how Jesus adds the second commandment to the first and it's certainly right to emphasize that, I think. But we have to also take note that Jesus does put them in order. He says the most important is love God. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. So the rest of the campaign, we're going to talk about what it looks like to love our neighbor. But today, we have to recognize that he does put them in order. So we have to first love God, okay? And then we love our neighbor, and I think what Jesus is getting at here is that we have to find our source of love in God. That God must be our source, our definition of love. And if we fail to do that, then we will not exhibit, demonstrate, give God's love to others. John in 1 John says that God is love. <laughs> it is a part of his innate character. It is who he is. And so for us to understand how to love our neighbor, we must understand how God loves and what it means that God loves. And so we must learn to love God more and more. And that we come to as we learn to love God, especially with more and more of our mind. So loving God first comes prior and it makes loving our neighbor really possible. Because otherwise... Whatever we are considering to be loved, if it is not rooted and sourced in God, it is not God's love that we are giving. Does that make sense? So first we love God. First we must learn to love God and what that is all about. More on that later. But we're going to go back to emphasizing how Jesus adds this second one and how significant and how important that is. This connection of the two, again, I mentioned Scott McKnight calls this the Jesus Creed. The connection of these two is really kind of like the hallmark of Jesus' whole ministry. Try to re read the Gospels. Next time you read the Gospels, read through it with this framework. It will show up everywhere, everywhere throughout Jesus' teaching and his life. Jesus, I think largely, this was the major conflict or blind spot of religion, the Pharisees especially, religious people in Jesus' day and age. They thought they were loving God well by giving, by doing their sacrifices, by following all of the calendar, the ritual holidays, and doing everything to the letter of the law, literally the law of Moses. 
But they were doing all of those things while also hating, harming, not loving their neighbors. And Jesus' primary emphasis throughout his life and ministry is, hey, you need to love God and do all of those things to follow him, but you can't neglect loving people too. And to love God at the neglect of loving people is to miss the whole story of the Old Testament, to miss the whole Torah. You've missed it all. You've misrepresented all of it. And we see this everywhere in Jesus' ministry. The parable of the Good Samaritan, we're going to talk about that next week. When, when he's asked, who, well, who's my neighbor? <laughs> Where Jesus goes through this again with him, and the guy says, he tries to justify himself, and he says, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus points out the people that they hate the most, right? The Samaritans. We'll talk about this next week. The parable of the prodigal son. Think about it. The older son, at the end of it, who's probably the primary uh, point in the story, at the end of it, the older son is like, Dad, I've been here with you for how many years? And you haven't given me even a goat to like hang out and party with my friends. Like, what's that all about? And Jesus points out, or God in the story, Jesus points out through the story that, hey, you've always been with me. I love you. Everything that I have is yours, meaning you've obeyed me. Good job. But this brother of yours was lost, and now he's found. He's, he was dead, and now he's alive. This is cause for rejoicing. You have been so focused on loving and serving me that you're not loving and serving your brother, too. You need to do both, okay? And those are some of the most significant, memorable parables in Jesus' ministry. Eating at Matthew's house. Okay, Jesus goes in and he eats with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees come up to him, and they're like, what are you doing? You can't do this. And Jesus tells them at the end of that, he says, uh, go back and learn what this means to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. He's going to quote the Old Testament at them. They're like, no, 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 we're the primary interpreters. We're the authorities on this. How dare you? So they're angry about that. But Jesus says, you have misrepresented all of Scripture. If you view me as having dinner with sinners as problematic, you've missed the entire point of the Torah. Jesus tells them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. So mercy, love, is much more important than just following the letter of the law out of a misplaced desire to worship God. And then in Matthew 23, Jesus says it really as plainly as you can when he pronounces <laughs> seven woes against the Pharisees. He calls them out for a bunch of stuff that they do hypocritically. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So they had been tithing the minutiae to the smallest amount that they brought in. They would tithe and give back to the temple. And they parsed it all out specifically to make sure they're giving a tenth of it out of worship to God. And Jesus says, you've missed it. <laughs> like, that's cool. That's fine. But you've neglected justice. You've neglected justice. You're spending all of your time sifting through all of the, your, your spices. And you're acting unjustly towards widows. Mercy, faithfulness, <laughs> you've missed the big rocks. It says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, 
I love this. I love this analogy. Straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. <laughs> they had missed the big picture. They were straining out gnats and drinking a camel <laughs> in there. And that's what we do when we neglect to love others in effort to serve God. Jesus says it elsewhere. Uh, band, you guys can come and get set up. John 13, 34 to 35, he says, a new commandment I give to you. This is in his farewell discourse. One of the last things he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So we get hung up on this new commandment talk of Jesus. And what he's saying is, this is an old command. This is in the Torah. But now he becomes our example of love, which we'll see later that John picks up on. How Jesus died on the cross and loved us through that, that's the definition of love. It's defined and sourced in God. So now we know what love really is because of Jesus. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is to be the defining mark of a Jesus follower to the outside world. How we love each other. That should change how we view one another sitting across the sanctuary from us, sitting across the rows from us, those within your household sitting next to you. How we love one another should be the defining marker for the world that you are a follower of Jesus. And then in 1 John 4, 19, he says it like this, we love because he first loved us. This is so important, you guys, to love how God has loved us. He goes on, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. <laughs> Think about how stark that is and just how blunt. So if you're in here and you're claiming like, yeah, I love God, but you hate your brother and sister in Christ, you're lying. You don't really love God then. You've missed the big picture of Jesus. You've missed the Jesus Creed. His whole life, his whole ministry was centered on this one principle, love God and love others. And if you're saying that you love God, but you hate your brother and sister in Christ, you are lying. You don't love God. You have deceived yourself into thinking that you do love God, but you don't, is what John says. For he who does not love the Father whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Very strong words from Jesus, from John. This must be the heart of what it means to follow him. So let's pray. I'll come up and apply it later. Lord. We thank you for your word that guides us for the truth of scripture. Lord, call us to convict our hearts, to love others as you love us. May your spirit do your work in us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing together. All right, let's apply this. How Jesus talks about loving God and loving others and how loving others is central to our faith in Christ and our spiritual formation. First thing we have to say on this is that loving others doesn't mean our cultural view of tolerance, okay? 
Our cultural view of tolerance is much more along the lines, I think this phrase encapsulates it pretty well. If you love me, you'll accept me for who I am. That's our cultural view of this, which is a huge oversimplification, right? <laughs> that's not the question that's really being asked. What we really mean is, if you love me, you'll approve of everything that I do. When one says that, what they really mean is, when you love me, you'll approve of everything that I do, right? Which we all know that that's nonsense, right? <laughs> we love people all the time whom we don't approve of everything that they do. Think of the parent-child relationship. I love my kids so stinking much. Like, I can't even put it into words. I disapprove of their behavior often throughout the day, right? But I still love them. And even my discipline and my desire to correct and to teach and to train is out of love for them. So this cultural view that says, you know, we must accept everything as moral and good and right, whatever one another decides if we are to love them, that, it, it, that's outside of the teaching of Jesus and outside of God's way. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. So the two go hand in hand, right? And if God is our model and our example for love, if he is our source for love, as we've been saying throughout all of this, God maintains both a call for us to be holy as he is holy, and yet he loves us. We are often not holy, right? In the sense of our, our morality and our behavior being in line with God's word and God's way, yet he loves us. So if God is our model for that, that should be how we live it out as well. That even if we may disapprove with, of one's behavior, we still love, but that doesn't mean we think that everything is moral. Because the sacred love of God is always moral. It always points towards goodness. Then next, as we've been saying, we can't divorce loving God from loving others. Remember, this was Jesus' hallmark of his ministry. This was probably his primary point that he kept calling people to. This is what it means to be people in the kingdom of God, is we love God and we love others well. As Christians, we have so much trouble with this. Unfortunately, this was Jesus' teaching, and this is what he was all about. And yet we still wrestle, we still struggle with this. We miss it. Go through a number of high-profile examples. These are high-profile examples that are, whatever, popular, maybe heard of already, maybe not. But we shouldn't go through these to, again, point the finger at them and say, oh, look how you screwed that up. Instead, we should be looking at us and say, oh, man, how have I done that? <laughs> how have I done something like this? I see that same evil at work in me or the same desire to separate loving God from loving others. At a conference a few years back, Bible teacher John MacArthur, he was asked to do a simple like word association. <laughs> he could give like a one word answer and the first word was Beth Moore, who's another Bible teacher with whom he has many disagreements of theologically. And that's, the disagreements are fair. His response was go home. 
And that was met with many people in the audience, kind of like a, a, a mix of like, haha, laughter and, and shock. Like, oh, he went there. But these guys weren't cool enough to do the, oh, you know, they, they don't know. This is a John MacArthur conference, right? Um, <laughs> but that was totally cruel. That's harsh, unnecessarily. In spite of the theological differences that they have, which are fair, you can have those theological distinctions and disagreements, there is no excuse for cruelty. There's no excuse for it. To do that is to say, I'm loving God with my theological accuracy and I'm, my categories are correct and according to scripture and therefore I can diminish and demean anybody else who disagrees with me. That is not in line with the way of Jesus. And instead of repenting, the next Sunday he preached a sermon on the biblical definitions and roles of men and women. He dug deeper. Another one, Mark Driscoll, there's a new podcast out about him and his church in Mars Hill. And he was accused years ago of a domineering form of leadership. And it eventually led him to leave his church. He, re he resigned and left after a, a whole exploration and they were gonna go through a big process to restore him to leadership and all of this stuff started a new church, and now a lot of the same type of accusations are coming up at his new church, of leading with a domineering form of leadership. This is an example of a, of a church, an individual who has put effectiveness, people coming to church, people believing in Jesus, growing a big church, all of that stuff, he has put that higher than loving his staff on the church. And it's a big miss because we are, as Christians, primarily called to love God and love others, right? And that is how the message of the gospel goes out. How are we known, according to Jesus, to the world? By how we love one another. That includes our church staff. That includes everybody in here. And if we are leading out of a domineering posture, we are missing the way of Jesus. These are problems in the church that we need to correct. We need to get back to the authentic way of Christ and loving others. Because there is no version of Christianity in which we can say that we are loving God, whether it is out of doctrinal purity or effectiveness of ministry and be a jerk to other people who are created in the image of God. That is not the way of Jesus. That is not how he taught us to live. That said, spiritual formation, it's not demonstrated by our theological Christianese language that sounds really good and can impress people. It's not demonstrated by our Bible knowledge. It's not demonstrated primarily in any way other than how we love one another. Those other aspects can be out of love for others, but if they are not, then we're doing it wrong. Our spiritual formation is primarily demonstrated in how we love other people. 
John elsewhere says in his first epistle that if we do not love, we are still in death. If we don't love others, we don't have the life of Christ in us. That should give us great pause of how we're loving each other. So if you want to examine your life in Christ, examine your spiritual formation, here's a good place to start. Start with questions like, how easily angered are you when somebody annoys you? How, easily ang- how, how quickly do you lose your temper at somebody and harm them and act in an unloving way towards them when they annoy you? How do you respond when someone offends you? Is your heart hardened towards them or is it softened? Do you forgive or do you hold a grudge? Do you show mercy to others or do you show them nothing but the letter of the law while expecting mercy from them towards you? Do you pursue opportunities to bless other people? Do you befriend people unlike you? Are you patient? Are you kind? You should sound familiar because I'm going through 1 Corinthians 13. And Paul's description of what love actually looks like. Are you a patient person? Are you a kind person towards others? Notice how those are related to how you relate to other people. Are you envious? Do you boast? Are you arrogant or rude? Do you insist on your own way? Are you irritable and resentful? Do you rejoice in wrongdoing or do you rejoice in the truth? Do you protect, trust, hope, and persevere in all things? If you wanna take a spiritual litmus test, it's a good place to start. How we're loving others is essential in our life with Christ. So how do we do it? By growing in love for God, with all of our being, we become the type of people who can love others. Again, we must learn to love God first, and we must explore first how God has loved us in order to give that same love to others. And as we explore this and learn more about how God loves us through scripture, I'm gonna go to that later. Let's start here. Um, If we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, the times that we act unloving towards other people, it's more a reflection of our internal life than it is of our external circumstances. Let me explain that. In the second week, we talked about our heart and how Jesus teaches that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And how he gets at the reality that It's not just that you're stressed at work that forced you 
to say the things that you did to your coworker or to your spouse or to your kids. That is a reflection of who you are. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That stressful situation at work doesn't necessitate you saying those hurtful things to your spouse. That is an overflow of your heart. So things like unforgiveness, ungratefulness, resentfulness, hatred, it is not because of the external circumstances of your life that you are responding in that way. It is who you are in your internal life that dictates how you respond. And so we must become the type of people who can act in a loving way in spite of our external circumstances, in spite of the stresses of this world, in spite of the day-to-day -day grind and our exhaustion and fatigue and going on, on and on down the list. The other person who offended you, we must become the type of people who can respond in love towards them in spite of all of that. And how do we do that? Again, if our concept of love is sourced in God, we look at God's love and how he has loved us first. And then we try to respond with that kind of love towards others. And the value of studying scripture is that as we study scripture more and more and learn more and more about God's love for us, we recognize how completely unattainable that is in and of ourselves. And we are struck with a sense of, I can't do that. <laughs> There's no way. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were living in rebellion against him, while we had his word and we said, no, thank you, I'm going my own way. He died for us. While we had offended him countless times, he died for us. That love is completely unattainable in and of yourself. So then our prayer becomes, Lord, heal my heart and help me through your spirit to love like you love me. Our prayer becomes one of complete dependence upon God. Because the more and more you try to love in and of yourself, the more and more you will fail and harm others. We need God's spirit to produce this in us. And so this leads us to prayer. <laughs> God, help me to love like you loved me. Help me to not respond in that way to these circumstances. And as we learn to love God more and more with all of our being, we will then learn to love others with that same love that God has for us. We're gonna go into communion. And as we do, I want you to be reflecting on the words of John here. He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. <laughs>
This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So let's go into communion now. I'm gonna invite you to go into the back, grab the communion elements and come back and sit. Wait to take them. I'm gonna come up and I'm gonna lead us in a time of guided prayer and reflection before we take communion together. But follow me, I'm gonna head back in there, grab a communion element, come back to your seat, and then we'll pray.